Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Each episode, I sit down with an inspiring person from the magic community. We hang out on their kitchen table to talk about Magic the Gathering as they share stories from the journey of their lives. This is episode 5. In this episode, I'm talking with local Seattle judge Chris Furterer. I've known Chris for years and he exemplifies the warm and welcoming nature of a magic judge. Chris is very knowledgeable about legacy and does some commentating on Card Kingdom's Twitch stream. Chris also likes to play all sorts of video games in his own Twitch stream, Superfluous Rhetoric. We talk about a wide range of things, including funny judge calls, busted EDH combos, and rolling up trash to create stars and planets. All on this episode of Kitchen Table Magic. I hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, this is Sam, host of Kitchen Table Magic. I'm sitting here today right now in Chris's Kitchen Table Bar. My name is Chris Furter. I used to be the event coordinator for Card Kingdom and also Mox Boarding House. And currently I am a card grader for Card Kingdom. So I work upstairs turning cardboard into dollar bills, which a lot of people love. And there's magic on this table also. So it's it actually, we have Kitchen Table Magic going here. That's right. I looked over and there are magic cards. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's one of the terrifying things about anybody who's into magic is there. there's going to be ma- like you go into their house, there'll be magic cards on their kitchen table. There'll be magic cards on their computer table. There'll be magic cards in their bathroom for some weird reason. <laughs> I see a lot of great gaming stuff. I, I've been I've been into gaming my entire life. So if there's like if there's a type of gaming, I've done it before. There is a Fallout Boy mask. Yep. It's the creepiest thing ever. I saw them at PAX last year. Not to, I guess, not to date this, but uh, 2015 PAX last year. Um, I saw people wandering around with them, and I was like, that is the creepiest serial killer mask that I've ever seen, and I wanted one. So I ended up getting one, and I wear it once in a while uh, to freak out my, my girlfriend, Chris. <laughs> yes, our names are the same. And I also see a Gengar pillow. Uh, that is Chris's. <laughs> not mine. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. And then we got some magic cards. We got some tabletop games. Yeah, I've... Uh, I started playing video games as a small child, so there's a lot of video game stuff. And then, oddly, I I did the the opposite of what most people do, which is go from like the tabletop versions of things to the video game versions of those things. Because typically, like take for example Warhammer Forty Thousand, it came out long before StarCraft did. But I started off with StarCraft and then went back. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in a lot of games in here because I've kind of done gaming my entire life every aspect of gaming i've always i've i've found them all to be entertaining in their own way so there's plus i'm also kind of like a, a weird pack rat collector thing so i love it yeah <laughs> i love it how how does card grading work card grading works uh in a way that is surprising to a lot of people the amount of cards but what ends up happening is Everyone around the world can go onto cardkingdom.com. On the left side of the screen, they can click uh, sell cards. And in there, they can put any of their magic cards that we happen to be buying into a sell cart. And then when it's all finished, they print the invoice out, put the cards in the order of the invoice, put them into a fat pack box or a deck box or whatever, throw it in, throw it into a into a box, put a UPS label onto it and ship it off to us. Now, uh, ends up getting to Card Kingdom. Uh, we open up like five or six bins worth of like mail bins worth of magic cards every day uh sort through the cards make sure that they're all in order that they're uh the same according to the invoice and then we look at the fronts and backs of them to see what they look like um so if they're if they're crisp and near mint then we'll grade them near mint if they're beat up then we'll grade them a little bit lower and therefore the person will end up getting a little bit less for them 
Um, once it's all finished, we input them into inventory, and when we do that, we also input money into their into their either their account uh, or we send them off a check or we add money to their PayPal, depending on what they want to how they want to get paid out. So, and that's it's that, and it's roughly I would say probably eight to ten thousand cards every day for seven days a week. Wow. Yeah. What's the coolest thing you've ever got? There are the orders that come in that have Power 9 that you're like, wow, that's really cool. But really, for me, the cool things are the oddities. Like, I've received uh, an arena, like one of the old arena lands that are like a foil promo land, where the art was facing one way on the front and ba- and upside down on the back. Wow. So rather than being able to flip over the magic card and having it be right side up, the back of it was upside down. Wow. It was a, it was a weird misprint. Um, another thing that I saw, and it ended up going on to the Card Kingdom eBay, uh, eBay page selling for like five or $600, was a crimped Bazaar of Baghdad. It wasn't near mint, which is unfortunate, but it was it was packed crimped, which is, they don't, that's, that's not a common thing. Like, Bazaar of Baghdads are pretty hard to find. They're like, like I think they're up to like seven or eight hundred dollars now, but finding one out of the few like thousand that were ever printed and finding it crimped, I was like, "Whoa, this is really cool!" Wow, it was neat because typically as a as a grader, we'll grade the backs of them because they're that's the side that sees the most play, and you can tell if a card has been played by looking at the back for the most part. So I was like flipping through this order, looking at the backs of all these cards, and I ended up finding one that was crimped, and I was like, "Okay," so I set that one aside, face down. Because I was just kind of going through, there's like a, a, a method to the madness of grading. So I was putting it down and I ended up finding this one that was like, all right, well, this is one that we can actually put into inventory and we'll end up having to either send back to the customer because it's not tournament legal or figure out something for it. And we ended up, I ended up tossing it down onto a playmat that's on my desk and waiting until I finished grading the order and got to the very end, flipped it over to see what the, lo- the front was. And it was a bizarre Baghdad. And I was like, whoa, okay. So I ended up uh, passing it off to uh, this guy who buys collections that works at Card Kingdom, and he ended up having a conversation with the customer that was selling it to us and setting up a deal for it. But then he ended up tossing it on eBay because we can't we can't sell it on CardKingdom.com because something as crimped as that one was is not tournament legal. It's not play- sleeve playable because you can feel the ridges under a sleeve. But it, all, overall, um, if you're that kind of collector that looks for oddities, it's it's priceless. Wow. So yeah. That's amazing. That was also the same way that I that I figured out if uh, that I figured out the the art was upside down on the on the planes was flipping through looking at the backs. I was like, why is this one upside down in the order? And I like flip it over, and then I was like, wait, this is right side up. Wait, why is the back and the front? And I was like really really confused. That one ended up being a another judge in the community in the the Seattle community. His name is James Lee. And I ended up messaging him because it was a, it was a, it was an oddity. It was a misprint. It was, it's when it comes to those arena lands, they're really rare because at the time, not a whole lot of people played magic or rather less people played magic. So I ended up messaging him and he was like, Hey, is it cool if I get that back instead of selling it to you guys for whatever price you guys are going to, I was like, yeah, sure. So I ended up taking it off and he picked it up down in the store, but finding those oddities, those are always the ones that really impress me. there's a lot of people that will go, well, it's like a foil Tarmogoy for a, or a, a black bordered power nine. It's like, yeah, those are expensive, but those are, you see those all the time. It's when you see those weird, strange cards. Those are the ones that really get me. That's really interesting. Yeah. What's the strangest judge call you've ever had to deal with? <laughs> oh, man. Strangest judge call. 
Oh man, I feel like there's so many of them that, let's see, there is a local player by the name of Greg Mitchell, who is synonymous for playing as few cards in the printed in the English language as possible. So uh-huh. all of his cards are Russian or Korean or uh, traditional Chinese. Uh, he steers away from Japanese, but he likes T-Chinese, S-Chinese, Russian, and, and Korean magic cards. Those are like, he likes to make sure that his decks match. And I walk over to his table because his, his opponent called for a judge. And his opponent was on Goblins. They were playing Legacy at the time. And uh, Greg was playing Ad Nauseam Tendrils, which is a storm deck in Legacy. And that is a deck that he plays a lot of. So I think there would have been single digit numbers of cards that were actually printed in English that his opponent could have read. But his opponent was attempting to resolve Earwig Squad, which Earwig Squad is a goblin that enters the battlefield and you get to look through your opponent's library, grab three cards and exile them. The problem with this is that his opponent was fresh, new at Legacy, was playing kind of like a a, a budgety goblin deck. Didn't have Rishon Imports, didn't have Wastelands. He just kind of put down a lot of goblins and stompied you really fast. So he's flipping through this library, has literally no idea what this deck does, what any of these cards do. And I had to, without being biased in this game and giving him any outside assistance, I had to kind of give him a brief rundown of every single card in Greg Mitchell's deck without giving him, without it being slow play. So it was kind of go through the deck, going through the deck, and I was like, uh, that one makes mana, that one tutors for something, that one discards something for your hand, that one just this, that one just, this. and going through, and his, he, he just had this look on his face that was just, it was a combination of confused and overwhelmed and, slightly frustrated where he's just like i'm just gonna take that one that one and that one and just be done with it (laughs) yeah unfortunately greg still had the right pieces in the deck to be able to combo off and kill him another an enjoyable uh judge experience that i've had was when restoration angel was in standard and so was fiend hunter and there's a there's a cool interaction where you can flicker fiend hunter before the enter the battlefield trigger before it resolves to be able to bounce it in bounce it back out and then bounce it back in with uh, restoration angel so that the first exile trigger just happens the 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 leave the battlefield trigger that normally would bring it back onto the battlefield doesn't see it leave the battlefield so it just kind of fizzles right and then another enter the battlefield trigger happens where it brings it exiles another thing as long as fiend hunters still on the battlefield and there's a way to flicker it where the first one it just happens indefinitely there's no way to bring it back from exile unless you have like pull from eternity which obviously is not standard having to explain how that interaction works to two people that are in round four that have been drinking pbrs all night oh my goodness I had basic land cards where I was using the basic land cards to visualize the, the abilities on the stack. And I was like, okay, so the island is the enter the battlefield, and the mountain is the leaves the battlefield, and then then you put Restoration Angel on the stack, and I was like, and then you then you put it, then you put this, and then you put the island, and then you, and, and they were like, but it was already gone. And I'm like, oh man, I'm gonna give you guys a time extension, but here's how it works. And yeah, that was that was one of my one of my entertaining magic judging experiences because they were so hammered oh yeah they were gone yeah, they, were, <laughs> they were they were i think i'm fairly certain they were the last match of friday night magic there were it was just them sitting in an empty 40 player tournament room and just it was like 11 30 yeah i was like time is called now just finish the game kind of thing <laughs> <laughs>
Chris, I wanted to ask you, where did you grow up and how did you start playing Magic? So I grew up in Washington. I'm born, raised, and have lived my entire 28-year life in Washington State. It's the greatest state in the entire world. Yeah. Um, or I guess the greatest state in the United States. But I learned how to play Magic in the fifth grade from my friend Brian Cakey. When I was ele- when I was in elementary school, I was one of the first like six kids that got into Pokemon because I had a subscription to Nintendo Power and I really loved Pokemon. I ended up finding out that they had a card game, so I jumped onto that crazy phase or that crazy fad that is still going to this day. I was one of those kids that would go down to the Wizard Store and buy first edition booster packs the second that they opened up the store because I knew that they got a shipment because they always sold out. So I had a ton of Pokemon cards, and my friend Brian Cakey decided that he wanted to get into Pokemon, and I was like, oh. Well, I have a bunch of Pokemon cards. I have extras. I have some of these extra rares that I don't need. And I really... I really want to get into magic because I was in fifth grade. The sixth graders were playing magic. And I was like, I want to get into magic because that's what all the cool kids are playing. And my brother was playing magic at the time. So I was like, all right. So I ended up trading, uh, I think it was like a Clefairy for a Gallo Braid, which is a, a Weatherlight legend who's a, he's a big stompy creature. He's a five, five with trample that has cumulative upkeep one life. So every turn you lose a life, lose two life, lose three life, lose four and so on and so forth. But it didn't matter because you had a five, five with trample and that's four turns. Your opponent's dead. So you don't really need to worry about it. So I ended up trading a Clefairy for a Gallobraid. I think I still have that Gallobraid. Sweet. But I ended up learning how to play Magic through a combination of my friend Brian Cakey, who had already played Magic with his older brother, and my brother. And the first time that I got heavily into Magic, so I, I had some cards because I liked the cool art on them and stuff like that, but I never really learned how to play Magic until Urza... It was Urza Block... There's a theme deck that you could pick up in, I think I want to say it was Urza Saga, that was the gimmick around the deck was free spells. So you had cards like Cloud of Fairies that you'd pay two, but then you'd untap two. You'd have Peregrine Drake and you'd pay five and untap five. And I had a, I, I ended up picking up that deck um, and throwing, cobbling in some, some sweet combos. One of my, my favorite combos of all time. That's actually not a powerful combo, but I, I loved it as a child is Prodigal Sorcerer and Charisma. And Charisma is, I think it's triple blue, an enchantment that you enchant a creature. And whenever the enchanted creature deals damage to another creature, you gain control of that creature as long as you control Charisma. So you slap that onto a Tim and you start pinging things and you're like, cool, I'll ping your Shivan your Shivan Dragon. Now it's mine. You ping you ping a creature and you take the creature. And so it was really cool because like the deck would go really, really, really well if your opponents had good creatures. But the downside is if they had something like Elves Tribal or Merfolk Tribal or uh, basic 1-1 Soldiers or Goblins, you end up not taking creatures. You end up just killing them. And then you're like, I just paid a lot of mana for a flashy gimmick that doesn't really do anything. But when they played their huge creature, you're like, cool, your nightmare, it's mine. Oh, wait, I don't have swamps. Sad. But yeah, you can just take creatures, which is really cool. That's so funny that you say that because one of the first homebrew decks I ever made, I called it Charismatic Crabs. So it would put Charisma on top of Horseshoe Crab on top of Hermetic Study. Do you remember Hermetic Study? Hermetic Study was the one in a blue enchantment from Urza Saga that your enchanted creature gains tap to deal one damage. Tap to ping. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and then I had that. And then I had Thornwind Fairies on top of Prodigal Sorcerer. Yep. And then I would also, because Horseshoe Crab would untap. I would also put Sigil of Sleep, so I would ping the player and then bounce a creature that the player owned. That's so powerful. It and sounds like we played very similar decks. That's awesome. I know. It's crazy. And then I would also, th- I would throw in a ton of counter magic in there. Yep. Because counter spells were a thing back then. And then I would throw in enchantment alteration and intervene. 
enchantment alteration moves an aura from yep. one creature to another and then intervene that counters a spell if it targets your creature. So yeah. it's kind of like a dispel. It was yeah. like the dispel of back then. Oh, man. This is like ridiculous. It, so then I'd also throw in a few palancrons and great whales with high tide. You know, I, I could never get palancrons and I could never get great whales, but I had like the cheaper ones. I had, I had Peregrine, Drake, and uh, and Cloud of Fairies. But yeah. yeah, it sounds like we had very similar very similar decks. It's, that's awesome. That's so crazy because <laughs> when you first started saying Prodigal Sorcerer and Charisma, I was like, yes! I know that deck! <laughs> I called it Charismatic Crabs. <laughs> that's awesome. I just called it Mono Blue Counterspells. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are the odds, right? Yeah, small uh, world. I know, small world. Chris, did you ever play competitively? Not to the not to the pro tour, not to day twos, but I've played in plenty of competitive tournaments where I've played in I've played in GPTs, I've played in uh, like fifty or sixty player legacy tournaments. I've played for where money's at stake. Yeah, I've I've played in those kind of tournaments, but I've never I've never made day two. I've never been on the pro tour. I've never received a platinum point or a, a pro point. I I got nothing out of those. Uh-huh. So <laughs> yeah, you're not on that grind, but you do play other formats, and you talked about legacy and stuff. What format? do you like to play i have drafted i'm not a huge fan of just your regular open up booster packs uh limited i love cubes uh frank lapore has a fantastic cube and i believe he has the the cube list online somewhere Uh uh-huh but he has a great cube that i i enjoy playing i enjoy legacy as you mentioned uh vintage is another format that i really like playing Modern no ban list, which is kind of it's I think it's only popular around here because there's like two stores that support it. Yep. It's like the weird middle ground between modern and legacy, where it has the almost the same power level as legacy and has kind of like the lack of disruption that you would get out of modern, where you don't have to your opponent's tapped out, you go to cast something, you don't typically have to worry about them force willing it or dazing it or whatever. You, you have to worry about mental misstep, but that's about it. I yeah enjoy modern no ban list. Uh, EDH, I play commander with some of my friends. Sweet. Who's your commander? My commander is Animar, Soul of Elements. Yeah. I, I ended up, when I got into EDH, I got into it with the pre-cons that came out in what, 2012, whatever. And I bought that deck, and then I ended up taking cards out, putting cards in, taking cards out, putting cards in, and I ended up getting it, tweaking it to the point where I enjoy it quite a bit. It's the only, it's the only deck that I've really enjoyed. Combo decks are kind of my jam, and when it comes to EDH, Animar is like a, a perfect combo general. I love him as a general. I also, I dabbled in Grand Arbiter Augustine the Fourth, but that deck is miserable to play and <laughs> miserable to play against because it's just counterspells and, and land destruction. What's your favorite thing about Animar? My favorite thing about Animar, I would say, is the interactions of all of the cards when they come together and being able to go from an Animar that has five counters on him to having a board state that is that you're swinging for lethal or your infinite flickering something to, to kill somebody via Perforos or something strange like that. One of the great things about the deck is if you get somebody that goes and... and uh, what is it? Bribery, the one that you can search your opponent's library and and put it under the play. Yeah, they typically go through my library and they're like, all of these pieces work together, but they don't really work for like I can I can I can grab like the big things like Kozilek or I can grab like a Crater of Behemoth, but like those cards don't really work by themselves. They're not they're not a solo thing. They're just kind of there as utility for me to take advantage of with Animar. 
which is one of the that's that I like I like the way that the cards interact. They they interact in a very very interesting level where you can you used to be able to kill somebody while in their upkeep or while a spell was on the stack, but they uh, banned Prophet of Crucifix. Oh yeah, which is brutal, but understanding, very understanding. I, I love Prophet of Crucifix. Just play and then pass immediately, untap and then just. It was brutal. And you're like, oh, wait one second. Before you draw, yeah. I'm going to go off again. <laughs> it's, it's really good. I, I, I play the uh, Deadeye Navigator and um, what's its face? Uh, Acidic Slime. Mm-hmm. And that's super unfun for anyone else. Agreed. It's a lot of fun for me. Yeah, it's yeah. just not very fun for anyone else. <laughs> the the best thing, and this happens in Animar, where you, you, you can bounce the Acidic Slime, take out something of theirs, and then you keep doing that until you're low on mana, and then you bounce the, the Deadeye Navigator and then bring it back in, uh, soulbound to, like, a, speaking of, like, Great Whale or a Palancron, and then you bounce your Palancron, and then you go infinite, you get your infinite mana back, and then you're just like, cool, I'm going to blow up all your lands. And oh, you just wow. infinite mana, and then infinite blow up there lands and it's it it can be very very rude is the best way to describe oh, it man. now i'm gonna put palancron in that deck because now that prophet of kufrix is gone it was basically a yeva herald of something mixed with a seedborn muse mixed with teferi yeah. yeah mixed with teferi or something so now you just have to have two creatures out instead of one awesome creature but oh man that was such a great card yeah i use uh i use seedborn muse and uh seedborn muse and teferi those are those are my, my. I had to replace replace Teferi or replace P- Prophet of Crufix, and I ended up putting uh, putting Teferi in in its place, which I feel is a little bit more rough because now people can't counter your stuff. <laughs> it's more punishing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's not as brutal because I used to be able to like birthing pot into it, and that was always my five drop. I was like, if I'm gonna search for something that's five, it's always going to be Prophet because that card is value. Uh, or if somebody else casts Prophet, then it's like, all right, I'll go find a clone and clone yours. And it, yeah. it was a very, very high value target. Now, I have to get two different high value targets, but it makes sense. It's fair. The Deadeye Navigator, I'm, I'm surprised that he hasn't gotten to the chopping block yet. Hmm, that's right, because he's a beater, too. I mean, he's a drop, but he'll hit you for five or something like that. I mean, he, it's a pretty big creature, right? It's a 5-5 five, five or a 4-4. Four, four. Uh, I actually don't know what his power and toughness is. I kind of just... it's a 5-5. Five, five. <laughs> I use him for his sweet ability. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I think... I feel as though he is more detrimental than uh, than Prophet of Crufix. He might see the uh, the axe if uh, if Sheldon Menery happens to play against it and get salty about it. And he's banned next. That one goes. <laughs> You play that in any Esper deck, and you go Magister Sphinx, and then you make for the cheap, cheap cost of one in a blue, you can make everyone's life total 10 yep. for as many, <laughs> yeah. as many sets of one in the blue that you have. Exactly. Yeah. And then you can latch it on to Mystic Snake and counter any of their stuff yep. for infinite counter spells, or you can have infinite land destruction, like we mentioned before. Uh, he's, he's good. I feel like that card's good. It's just one of those things where as soon as they hit the battlefield, Everybody on the, at the table is like, ah, okay, does anybody have a counter for that? Can anybody kill that before he gets another untap? Can We just need to get rid of that now. And uh, we need to get rid of that a turn ago, actually. That's too funny. Yeah, I'm thinking about all these cards I need to go buy now. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about Legacy. What are you playing Legacy? I actually have... Close to $22,000 in Legacy cards. So, yes, is the answer. <laughs> um, my favorite decks, I play Dredge. I play Enchantress. I actually made money with Enchantress twice, I think, uh, which is not a great deck currently, but it's it's really, really fun to play. And I went undefeated with it, I think, about a month ago. But uh, Enchantress, Dredge, Storm, The Cure is a fun deck. 
Uh, I, any flavor of Delver except for Rug. I'm not really a huge fan of Rug Delver because I don't have Tarmogoyfs. Uh, but Grix Delver, Blue Red Delver, those are always, those are fun to play. Like various X Blade decks, like Stoneblade Deathblade. Um, I have a sweet Living and, or Living, Living Wish Vile Maverick deck that I enjoy playing as well. Online, because cards are much cheaper, uh, or more specifically, Candelabras are a lot cheaper. Um, I like playing High Tide. Yeah. Except for it's currently not favored in the Legacy metagame because a lot of people are playing Chalice decks. And when you put Chalice on one for for uh, High Tide, the deck kind of just sputters out and dies because it loses Brainstorm and Ponder and High Tide and Preordain and Candle Operations and, and Sensei's Divining Top. It loses pretty much the entire deck. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, but it it's a fun deck to pilot when Chalice of the Void is not uh, is not everywhere. One of the first decks that I wanted to build when I was thinking about Legacy was High Tide. And then I looked at the cost of Candelabra and I was like, no thanks. And then, they, <laughs> and then they went up and they went up. I'm surprised they haven't gone up more in the past couple of years. I think they've 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 settled at 400. 400? Yeah. I was looking at 200 last time. Yeah. Now 400. <laughs> yep. Oh my God. It's over $1,000 to get a playset. It's kind of rough. That's insane. Are you excited for Eternal Masters? I'm more scared of Eternal Eternal Masters than excited because a lot of the cards that are being printed in it that I'm excited about are cards that I already have. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm kind of like, oh man, that Sylvan Library is getting reprinted. I have some in Legends. Should I hold on to them? Should I get rid of them? I'm not sure what this set is going to do for the secondary market. It's the amount of packs that are getting distributed uh, are going to be much lower than Modern Masters and Modern Masters 2. I'm not as scared of it destroying market values. I've been I've been definitely eyeballing the prices of my my collection for a while. But I think if I have some friends that have boxes, I might uh, I might I might draft it. It seems like a really really fun draft format. It seems like cube the set, which I like cubing. So if you can have a much more randomized cube, why not? Yeah, that would be a great question. That financial question to ask Brian Rowe. Yeah, I, I'm really curious. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because it's one of those things where, when it comes to these packs being open, there aren't going to be nearly as many as people would expect. I think the commons, uncommons might see a little bit of a dip, but I think the rares and mythics won't really won't be affected. And in fact, if this does what it did to modern, it's just they're just going to see spikes because more people will get into legacy because these cards are more readily available, and a lot of those cards that are on the reserve list will go up because more people will go well i drafted modern or i drafted eternal masters all weekend i have three force of wills now i just need a fourth one pick up my fourth force of will now i just need underground seas and there's going to be a lot of people that need underground seas or volcanics or they want to get into show and tell and they need city of traders or they're getting into whatever deck and they they happen to still need those cards that are never and potentially will never get reprinted i don't know i'm kind of i'm very very curious to see what uh, the car- the prices for legacy cards are going to look like in six months. Chris, I want to ask you, when did you decide to become a judge? <laughs> I decided to become a judge when my boss said you need to become a judge. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 2011, I started working for Card Kingdom, running Friday Night Magics at Berserk Games when they were up on uh, Finney Ridge. They had one event every week that was Friday Night Magic. They also had a board game night that happened on Wednesdays. 
but uh, they're they're really the only thing that I ran was Friday Night Magic, and I continued running these events, and I continued running events, and then we moved to the to the location where Card Kingdom currently is, and we expanded to having booster drafts and running uh, pre-releases and running a legacy event and running a commander night and running all of these different events where, as an event coordinator, I could be full-time event coordinating rather than, at the time, part-time event coordinating and then helping and shipping fulfilling orders. But uh, I ended up running like three or four magic tournaments every week. And my boss was like, well, you should probably become a judge. And I was like, okay. And then I ended up uh, being uh, swept under the wing of James Dohung Lee, who's one of the level threes in Washington State. Um, one of the the best scorekeepers that I know, and he gave me this look of confusion and disappointment when I told him that I wasn't a judge. He was uh-huh. like, he's like, you judge how many tournaments every month, and you're not a judge. And I was like, no. And he's like, we're gonna get that remedied. So I ended up uh, studying up for level one, which is pretty much just run Friday Night Magic and run booster drafts and run everything that I was already running and learning the ins and outs of the 300 plus page rule book that Magic is built into. Little did I know, I really only needed to learn like 12 different pages. But I ended up <laughs> using going a little overboard. And then Gavin Verhe, who works in R&D right now, he came over to Card Kingdom. We sat down, printed out the, the 25 question test. I took it and passed by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> like awesome. I was really, really close. As we were going over the questions, and he was giving me the answers, and he was giving me the correct answers, and I was like counting the number of incorrects that I got in my head, and I was like, one, and he's like, okay, so you got this one right, you got this one right, you got this one wrong, and I was like, two, and I was like doing this math in my head, and I was like, I know I can probably miss like seven, and if I miss seven, then I then I fail. We ended up getting to the end of the, the review portion of it. Under the table, I had my fingers, and I was counting, and I had six on my fingers. He was like... And uh, that's it. Congratulations, you're level one. And I just let out a, just a, an exorbitant sigh where I was like, okay, I don't have to wait another two weeks or two, another two months to be able to retake this test again. So that 2011 was the time that I decided that I wanted to be a judge. Less because I wanted to be and more because it was a part of my job. It was there. Magic players have a... Uh, they have this extra level of comfort knowing that the person that's answering their judge question isn't just somebody who knows a lot about rules, but actually happens to be somebody certified. Me becoming a judge was better for the overall greater good of Card Kingdom. It made our, made our events look a little bit more uh, well-polished and professional. I can definitely attest to that firsthand when I first came to Seattle and started playing, I guess, from a, on a local level competitively. Chris, you were the first memory of me playing at an FNM that meant a lot to me because I was like, wow, here's someone who's like a pillar of the local community and he's a judge and he's answering all my questions and taking the score and calling time and introducing himself in the beginning of every single FNM with lots of gusto. And yeah. <laughs> it was just, it was just really wonderful. And it was just like such a core memory of mine playing Magic in Seattle. Yeah, I think as somebody who plays Magic, also, I, I can attest to the fact that if if the store has a has a certified judge, it's, it, it makes you feel a little bit more comfortable when there's somebody walking around answering judge questions rather than you say, I don't have I don't know how this interaction works. And you raise your hand and yell for a judge. And then somebody gets up from their from their match three tables down where they're playing standard also. And they walk over to your table and they're like, oh, yeah, what's up? And you're like, who are you? And they're like, oh, I'm a guy who also works beyond the register that just happens to know a little bit about magic rules. And it 
it's a little bit more comforting and it, it does make it feel a little bit more professional or almost like a like a small Grand Prix or a small PPTQ kind of thing where you're like, you get to play in this event that feels professional. It's it's definitely one of the things where I've had a lot of players get really disgruntled when they ask a question about something and then somebody else tries to answer the question for them and they're like, no, 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 no I want to hear it from the, the judge. And regardless of if this person that's answering it happens to be a judge or is more knowledgeable about magic rules than the current judge that's on staff, it just... it. It feels nice getting that answered from somebody who has like the the black and white bars or the new DCI judge shirts or the new Wizards of the Coast judge shirts. I don't know if they're still DCI branded. I haven't actually looked at the back of mine. I think they're Planeswalker branded now. How many of those shirts do you have? I have one of the old Kevlar ones that are super thick, and I think I have a couple of the the newer, thinner material one material ones. Oddly enough, those ones you get them only when you're judging at Grand Prix, and when I'm at Grand Prix, I'm usually scorekeeping, so I don't get judge shirts. So <laughs> I don't get nearly as many of them as you'd think. The amount of uh, Channel Fireball staff shirts that I have, I, I have too many of them. Um, <laughs> because when you're scorekeeping, you're wearing a Channel Fireball staff shirt. Or rather, at a Channel Fireball Grand Prix you are. Chris, I want to ask you if you have any advice for new or aspiring competitive players to improve their level of play. Practice. That is one of the biggest pieces of advice that anybody can receive when playing any game. A Magic, Counter-Strike, Go, whatever. Whatever game it happens to be, practice. It's this really, really boring old school saying of practice makes perfect, but really practice is this, it's a huge thing. Especially in Magic, where you have the 60-card deck sitting in front of you, that there are so many, potentially so many different levels of intricacies in your deck, and just knowing the ins and outs of your deck, and knowing the ins and outs of every other deck that you play against, it makes you feel more confident and comfortable playing Magic than your opponent does. And if you can get that, and you have a, you have a better grasp of the rules and a better grasp of the game at hand, then you'll perform better than your opponent will. And then from there, it's just pay attention, take your time, but don't take too much time because that can be slow play. Um, but yeah, take your time and pay attention to what's going on because I've seen misplays that can cost you the game are the most are the worst kind of misplays because not only do they cost you the game, but they potentially cost you the rest of the tournament because you're going to be on tilt with that in the back of your head for the next three rounds where you're just thinking you're like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have swung there. I should have seen that he had a that he had a land that could have turned into a creature. I should have seen. I should have counted the amount of mana that he had open for counter spells or removal. Or uh, I should have played my land before I cast that spell, so I had something to be able to pay for any days effects or any taxing effects. Or I should have played my creature post combat because I couldn't have swung with it. I should have played it post combat because that could have that could have bluffed some type of removal or something. And it, it'll end up you'll end up psyching yourself out for the rest of the tournament. For the most part, I would say practice. Like, practice is a big thing. Um, Luckily for Standard, uh, the amount of deck archetypes aren't that vast, so you you don't have to be comfortable playing against that many decks. But if you're getting into modern or you're getting into legacy, knowing every deck that you're playing against is is so important because then you know what to look for. You know what to sideboard in. You know what they're going to sideboard in. You know what to sideboard out because it doesn't do anything anymore. You can learn that via practice. If, if you get beat by a specific deck, there's only so many times that you can get beat by that deck before you realize, this is how I beat that deck and I know how to beat that deck and now I'm never going to get beat by that deck. 
And you just do that for every deck in the format, which is very time consuming. <laughs> you got to go through that gauntlet. Yeah. I remember about nine months ago, I decimated my entire collection and I traded into, I guess you could say tier one modern. So I got myself a playset of Goifs, Lilies, Bobs. I got an extra playset of uh, Snapcasters or something like that. And I was like... I'm going to play Jund. And I went in and I just lost every match for, I think, about three to five weeks straight. Yep. And I was like, wow, this is incredibly difficult. Yeah. And, uh, but the funny thing is that I went through that gauntlet and I never lost to that same deck ever again. Yeah. And so I did, I lost a burn the first time, kind of shook my head. I didn't lose a burn the second time, lost a merfolk the first time, shook my head, didn't lose a merfolk the second time. Yeah. And that's just kind of how it goes, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the things like, uh, legacy is another one of those formats where more so because you need to know the exact kind of cards that are in the format because there are cards like Cabal Therapy where you're like, I cast Cabal Therapy and your opponent says that card resolves. And that's when you immediately go into the tank because you're like, now I have to name a card that's in their hand. What would be in their hand? What are they playing? What would beat my deck? How, what do I do? And a lot of the times it's just what kind of card would destroy me right now? And so you're like, well, right now it'd be a real bummer if my opponent had Force of Will. So Cabal Therapy and they're like resolves and you're like Force of Will and they're like, here's one. And you're like, cool. Now I can go off. <laughs> or you're like, uh, you're playing Dredge and you're like Cabal Therapy. And they're like resolves and you're like, hmm, rest in peace. And they're like, here's a rest in peace. And you're like, yes, the coast is clear. Or you name uh, Surgical Extraction or you're playing Storm and you name Flusterstorm or you're, you're naming the specific card that would ruin your deck and having as much practice as you can to know exactly what's inside of those decks can make or break your, your tournament for you. Yeah. At high level play, it's like those small percentage point things. Yeah. They make it, they add up, they make a difference. Yeah. And especially like when you get into legacy uh, or any of like those, those formats where the decks really pack a punch that's when that small percentage can cost you the entire game. Like, it doesn't hurt then, but it gradually hurts more and more and more over the course of the game. And you're like, oh, now that I, like, now that I made that single misplay, it literally cost me, like, six turns or, like, 12 points of life or something over the grand scheme of things. You're like, had I done that, I'd, I would still be in the game right now. But I made the key, a key mistake that let my opponent just get one, one right hook in and just jab me right in the face. And now all of a sudden I'm seeing, I'm seeing Tweety Birds. Oh, man. <laughs> Chris, you also do commentary for Card Kingdom's Legacy 1K Preservation Series. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. At first, Chris Corneo, the event coordinator currently at Card Kingdom, he decided that he wanted to start running streams for the store because it, everybody likes watching Legacy. Like, it's one of those formats where, like, back when Star City ran Legacy, uh, Legacy Opens when, uh, and they did coverage for those Legacy Opens when there's, whenever there's Legacy Grand Prix on, their numbers are so crazy. Like, there are so many people that like watching Legacy because it's a very, it's a very exciting game to watch because you're watching the most powerful cards in Magic history being played by people who are potentially some of the best Magic players in the world. He decided, he's like, all right, let's, let's make a stream for this. Let's get it out there. Let's make it more known about this format because this is a format that a lot of people love. It's legacy is this format that's driven 95% by the diehard people who have spent thousands of dollars on their cards. And so he decided to, to set up, uh, some cameras in the tournament room of Card Kingdom and set up a, like a little mini booth. 
and set up, bring in uh, an, like an equalizer and a computer and plug everything in and get everything set up and make a Twitch, uh, a Twitch account. And then he asked if there were anybody, if there was anybody in the area that wanted to do commentary for the stream. And a bunch of the regulars who were very knowledgeable about the format jumped up and I was kind of, I think I was like wave two, wave 2.5 of the, of the commentators that were jumping in. Yeah. Once a week on twitch.tv slash card kingdom, uh, on Mondays at 6 30 PM Pacific standard time, they do legacy tournaments and there's a fantastic community of people who play legacy in the Seattle area that, once in a while, I get to talk about how sweet they're playing and like the cool decks that they're playing and uh, bring them into the booth for interviews along with uh, Josh Monks, who is, uh, is incredibly well versed in like almost every format under the sun. So he's typically in the booth. People like Sean Yu and Greg Mitchell and Casey Hogan and uh, Mike Kiesel. There's a lot of people who are very knowledgeable about uh, about the formats that they're passionate about and they're always in the booth. And we typically will look down the title of, or the, the list of names in the, for, in the in the tournament and we will see like, well, that person's playing this deck. That's a boring deck. No one wants to watch that. <laughs> this deck, however, this has got some spice in it. Like this person is playing the cure or this person is playing a sweet Bant 12 post deck or this person is playing tin fins or this person is playing some weird off the wall deck that no one plays except for that person. And that person doesn't even typically play it. And we'll get it onto the camera so that people can watch it and see exciting games of magic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's neat. It's a, uh, it's a way to still be a part of the legacy community. Even if you feel like you're a little burned out from playing legacy, you can still sit in and shoot the breeze with, uh, with other people and go, man, look at that. Look at this most, this, this player right going on that's going on right now. Look at this play. Look at, Oh man, hopefully he gets this top deck and then he gets the top deck and everybody goes crazy yeah. and it's it's really exciting to to do the uh the commentary for it but yeah like you mentioned i also do some of the commentary for some of the bigger saturday uh saturday afternoon events um they're the legacy preservation series which is their card kingdom mox boarding house is uh one thousand dollar tournaments their one k's mox boarding house does like 1.5 to 2k events depending on the size of the tournament that they get they also do popper tournaments that once in a while I do commentary for um, or vintage tournaments or pretty much any uh, any sweet format that I'm comfortable with. All this talk about legacy, it makes me just really want to play some legacy right now. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, I don't have any uh I don't have any decks or cards, but I'm just like, mm, maybe I could brew up something, maybe I could play burn. I don't know, but it just sounds really, really interesting. Burn made top eight this past Saturday. Oh really? Yeah. It's I mean that the deck is so powerful. It's just I mean it's a little rough now with Eldrazi kind of not necessarily running rampant, but being fairly popular in the format. A combination of Eldrazi being popular and Miracles being popular. It's rough when your deck is one drops. Uh, when you're lightning bolting your opponent and Goblin Guide and Grim Lava Mancer and Monastery Mentor and Chain Lightning and all of that just all of a sudden gets stopped by a counterbalance in a top with a one drop on top or a Chalice of the Void on one and you're kind of like, okay, well, this is awkward for me and you're hitting me with a with a reality smasher. Huh. Okay. Good game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chris, you have a very entertaining Twitch stream. 
Can you tell us about that? <laughs> I, I'm curious if you're watching my Twitch stream because I don't feel like my Twitch stream is entertaining. But yes, I, I, when, I'm, when I'm not playing Magic, I stream a plethora of video games on Twitch. Twitch.tv slash superfluous rhetoric, which is a big $2 word for uh, talking way too much and all of it stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's pretty much what I do is I will slap some headphones on, turn a, a light on in front of me so I get some nice lighting, set up a green screen behind me and play a video game. Any word that comes up in my in my brain, I just spit it out because it's like it's hard to be entertaining and also be good at a game. So I try to be good at a game and just speak and just whatever word wants to whatever I want to talk about. I'm just I just talk about it. And so like there's a lot of times where I'll go back and I'll watch previous video on demands of the stream or I'm like putting some of the the clips onto the YouTube channel that I have and I'm like when did I say that I don't remember I don't remember talking about that on stream or I don't remember I don't remember somebody jumping into the chat room and saying this because I, I got the I have the chat chat plugged into my stream so that everything that I'm saying I'm communicating with the people in the chat room and I'm like when was that person talking about oatmeal raisin cookies? Like, when did I ever get on that topic? <laughs> but apparently I talked about it for 15 minutes. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I, I play, I haven't actually been streaming recently. Um, I've been kind of in between doing a bunch of other random things, uh, charity work and, uh, playing way too much Overwatch and working and stuff like that. And just stuff that keeps me away from my computer. I need to get inspired to get back. Maybe, maybe this, this podcast will be what inspires me to, to bring up the green screen again and play. But yeah, I, I do everything from indie PC games to AAA title PC games to console games to like older console games to newer console games or nostalgia stuff or Nintendo games or whatever. I've, I've streamed pretty much everything. Like, I've streamed Overwatch, Diablo 2, I've streamed Katamari Damacy. Oh, I love that game. It's so good, right? Oh my <laughs> gosh, I played, I, I was so addicted to the first one, mm -hmm. and then the second one I, like, bought on, like, Xbox and, like, tried to collect, you can collect all the collection of the different objects. Yep. Yep. That's insane. I, I actually got into Katamari, the Katamari series with the second one, which is uh, We Love Katamari on the PlayStation 2, and then I retroactively went back and bought Katamari 1, which is not a cheap game anymore. <laughs> like people, I love it. You love it. It's a very lovable game, it's which wonderful. means it's because it's out of print. It's difficult to get. But I played the one on the PSP and the one on the on the Xbox 360, and it's just it's like Pokemon, where they don't change up the the recipe, but it's still entertaining every single time that you play it because you're like. You, you go into a Katamari game and you're like, yeah, I played through the first Katamari game. I played through Katamari Damacy. I finished the entire game. I know for a fact that when I pick up We Love Katamari, it's not going to be a different game. It's going to be the same game. It's going to be grab the big sticky ball, roll up a bunch of things and make a giant ball. And I don't care. I just that's that's exactly what I want. I just want to be able to continue playing this game. And every single game is just another rendition of the previous Katamari game and different levels where you get to pick up other objects. And it's so simple, yet so perfect. It's just, it's and that and like the soundtrack is, is probably one of my favorite soundtracks of all time. It, 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 I used to have it on my PSP back when I, I had a PSP and I'd, I'd be on the bus going to school and I'd have my headphones plugged into my PSP and I would be listening to the Katamari soundtrack because it has such like just addictive music to it. 
super good. Did you ever go to Daiso Japan, that that Japanese dollar store in the Seattle area? No. Everything in the store is like a dollar fifty. Yeah. But you can get anything. Like you, you go there and there's like a garden section. There's like a huge kitchen section. There's like little pencil erasers. Like literally everything for your home. Storage, huh. little plastic bins. And so whenever I go in there, of course it's like very Japanese theme. But I can't stop but think about it like a katamari damacy level. <laughs> I'm like. I want to roll up all the bins on the shelf. And I was like, but I can't because they're too big. I need to go over to the smaller candy section first. We need those erasers first. Yes, we need exactly. the erasers first. And then I can pick up those brooms. Like Exactly. It's insane. It's it's just so good. It's It's not complex, but it's something that everybody needs to experience. It's one of those things where if you've never played a Katamari game, there's a there's an empty, weird Prince of All Cosmos size chunk in your heart that's just missing. And you're like, I need to fill that with just a tiny little object that rolls over people. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned those quotes, like those weird quotes that the King of the Cosmos, which is a character in the storyline, the uh, drunk dad. The drunk dad. Yeah. And he's saying all these super strange quotes during all the cutscenes. Yeah. He he is, in any of the Katamari games, he's the reason why you are doing whatever you're doing in the Katamari games. Because in the first Katamari game, he's out partying and he's he's had a few. And so he decides to fly around the universe and blow up all the planets. And you, being his... his Prince, the sun, or the, something the like prince that. Prince of yeah. all cosmos, his, his almost unloved son. He's just yeah. like... Go and fix daddy's mistake. I'm going to be over here nursing a hangover kind yeah, of thing. And you're yeah. like, here, here's this here's this planet that I created for you. And he's like, yeah, I guess this is good enough. Throws it up into space. And you're like, I spent 15 minutes making that. <laughs> it's it's kind of like, it's like the making macaroni art for your parent. And your parents just like, yeah, whatever. I'm, I don't, cool. Good job. And you're just like... But, but love me, father. <laughs> Except the macaroni thing is actually the family car and your dad wrecked it. <laughs> yeah, your dad it's wrecked little... it and he, he wants you to repair it. <laughs> Chris, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? I was born ready for this very moment. Awesome. Okay, question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what is your favorite color and why? Uh, red, it's fast. Uh, that's the first deck that I played was, uh, was a, one of the first decks that actually was good, uh, rather was a goblin deck and just being able to go really, really fast was one of my favorite things. Going fast, attacking, burning people out. Reds, yeah. Red does that great. <laughs> red does that great. You're the first red mage I've spoken to. Oh, what? Yeah. Yeah, red's great. I love it. Now with, now with stuff like, uh, Young Pyromancer and Monastery Mentor or Monastery Swift Spear, like, not only do you get to go fast, but you also get to play creatures that when you go fast, you get to make more creatures. It's awesome. Or rather, I guess with Monastery Swift Spear, you don't, but you get to deal more damage. It's very fitting because you love spicy food and you are wearing a red shirt right now. My sweet mustard plug shirt. I like, <laughs> I like third wave ska. So I got it at a, I went to their show uh, like six months ago, I think. And it was, it was a blast of a show. And I was like, I want that shirt. I want that one right now. So I ended up picking it up. I love it. If you were a red creature or a red spell, what would you be? Any spell? Yeah. Any red spell. Tybalt. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Cause pain to myself in every magic play that ever casted me. Be just a giant disappointment in the world. <laughs> Plus one, lose the game. <laughs> if I were a red spell, I would want to be... 
Uh, Young Pyromancer. Yeah, yeah. Young Pyromancer. I think Young Pyromancer is a fantastic card. I love that card. I th- I feel like I feel like Young Pyromancer is the perfect two drop for the the two drop rainbow of like Snapcaster, Tarmogoyf, uh, Dark Confidant. I think Young Pyromancer fits the 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 two one one drop or the the two one uh, two drop category. I guess Tarmogoyf isn't a isn't a two one, but it fits that that sweet two drop category. Yeah, and it goes wide. It goes really wide. Like it, sure, it makes dudes and kills things and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, like when you cast Cabal Therapy and you're like make make a token, sack the token, make a token, cast Cabal Therapy again. You're like, there's so much value when you have when you have a young Pyrance on the battlefield and you cast Cataxian Probe. You find out everything that's in your opponent's hand, and then you cast Cabal Therapy and you take one of the cards from your opponent's hand, or maybe two if you're getting value out of it, and then you flash it back and take another card out of your out of your opponent's hand and you just have this army of tokens and your opponent has no cards in hand it's beautiful it's 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 awesome i love it (laughs) wow that's amazing question number two chris if you could change something about magic the gathering what would it be whoa if i could change something about magic the gathering i would change magic online i would change i would i would i would figure out a way to put as much effort and love into magic the gathering online as they do for hearthstone or league of legends or dota or any of these major esports because when i see like auditoriums packed full of people for the international i'm like that should be what a pro tour is like there instead of it being uh, some convention hall or something like that where the where the pros are at it should be this huge auditorium with people with foam fingers that say Brian Kibler on it and inflatable those inflatable whacking toys that you that you get at like a like a basketball game it should be this this huge thing with elaborate cool uh, backdrops and commentators that can tell this wonderful story and sponsorships for all of the players and all these really awesome things. It should be that spectator sport that every that that all of these other games are is what Magic Online should be. And I think I think Wizards of the Coast has the has the resources to do so. They just they just need to. Chris, question number three: If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? Oh man. If I could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? A legacy deck of their choice. Ooh, spicy. Yeah, I think I am a firm believer that legacy is the best format that you can play. I think it's it is the cream of the crop best deck. It's the it, if you need a piece of removal, you can get that piece of removal, and you and you can put that in your deck. Uh, if it's banned, you wouldn't be able to get the perfect removal, but you can get something close to it, and you can play the fastest creatures, the strongest spells, the most most potent counter spells. You can play all of the best cards in Magic. And it, I feel as though it makes every Magic player a better player because there's so many, there's so many intricacies to, to just a turn structure in Magic and Legacy allows you to, to abuse that turn structure where you're like, cool, end of your draw step before you go into your main phase. When we get priority, I'm going to cast Vendillion click to target you and take whatever you drew out of your hand or drew off the top of your library this turn before you could potentially cast it if it's a sorcery or a creature. And there's a lot of people that are like, Wait, you get priority at the end of your draw step? <laughs> I thought you just drew and then you go into your main phase. Like, that's weird. And like, you you get these things where you get a lot of people that are like, I cast this dude and then I go into combat. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Beginning of combat, I'm going to cast this. Or the end of this, or the end of this phase, or this step, or this, whatever. You learn so much about the game of magic that just overall makes you, it opens your eyes so much to magic. 
Wow, I really love that answer so much. Yeah, that's wonderful. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for. Okay, it would cost it would cost me billions of dollars to give everybody a legacy deck. Maybe I'll give them all like proxies, Merfolk or whatever. <laughs> Everyone gets proxies. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, number four. What do you see in the future of Magic: The Gathering? Ooh, in the future of Magic: The Gathering. Let's say, let's see. What do I see in the future of Magic: The Gathering? I see. I don't. I that's that's one of the things about Magic. I don't know if I can, I I just, I have a hard time answering that question because that's one of the things like I can say that I want, that I'm like, oh yeah, the next big thing in magic is going to be a 10,000 player Grand Prix. And then Wizards of the Coast will, will flip me 180 and say, this is actually what's doing, what we're doing. And we're like, what? I didn't see that one coming. Um, There's so many things that they put out. There's so, they, because of the fact that they have this crazy five to 10 year plan, they're already thinking of things that none of us could ever possibly imagine. Like, it's just these weird things where they're like, oh, by the way, we're going to put out this product. And you're like, that's a product? Ooh, actually, that that's that's the answer to the question. If I can see one thing, I would see a gold bordered square corner, just like the, uh, the Collectors International uh, sets, cube. I would see them re- releasing an entire 360 card cube. I think wow. that would be sweet. Wow. But like not tournament player, not tournament playable, but like the holiday cube, if they released the holiday cube and said, Hey, for 250 bucks, you can buy the holiday cube. It's all, they're all proxies. They're all like, and they're not proxies, but they're all gold bordered yeah. and not tournament legal, but be able to be able to experience the holiday cube on paper. That'd be awesome. Oh, I, I, I would, would get that. I, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. Like everybody would shell it out and be like, Oh man, it would be, it would be the copy of Cards Against Humanity for every Magic player, where everybody's like, "Hey, do you want to you want to play the Holiday Cube?" It's like, "Yeah, I got one too." Like, oh, everybody gets a Holiday Cube. Oh my gosh! Actually, yeah, no, that answer just kind of blew my mind too. Because now that I think about it, I'm just like, "Can you imagine a future just like what you said, giving every player a Legacy deck, but now every player has like a Power Cube, yeah. and then they're basically like, "Yeah, let's bust this thing out." You you can have dinner parties now. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what's what's the most fun thing that everybody does on Magic Online? Plays the Holiday Cube. Not a whole lot of people play Magic Online because it has the stigma for just being a being a program that not everybody enjoys. But if if you could give everybody a copy, a cardboard copy of the Holiday Cube, people would just be like, "Oh, this is awesome!" Like I get I get to I get to draft this cube that I get to learn what everybody's hyping about this cube, and I get to own one. I think that it would be nasty. I think the problem is that is that everybody would buy one and then you would have everybody owning a holiday cube. <laughs> so it's like, hey, do you want to play the holiday cube? It's like, no, I already play my own holiday cube. <laughs> but it's cool because I actually, if you think about it, like that gives you a cool, a cool ground, uh, a foundation for you to tweak that holiday cube to make it the way that you want. And as long as everything's sleeved, you can just like, all right, I'm going to take out this card and put in this card because I feel like this card's too powerful and I like this card. And you get to tweak the, you get all of these key cube staples uh, for a low, low price kind of thing, rather than having to spend thousands of dollars for power nine kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. That is such a good possibility. I love that answer so much. (laughs) And last, Chris, do you have any asks or requests of the audience? Like, where can they find you on social media and stuff? Oh, geez. Um, you can find me on, uh, I have a Facebook page for my stream. It is facebook.com slash superfluous rhetoric. Uh, it's a fancy word. I, I can, it, I can spell it out, but it's, it's a lot of, <laughs> there's an H after that R. <laughs> there is, there is an H. There's a lot of U's. <laughs> an E's. Fluous. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, you can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash superfluous rhetoric. You can find me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash superfluous rhetoric. And you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter name is my first and last name, but it's, I've switched the first letters. Um, so it is Friss, F-R-I-S, Kerderer, K-E-R-D-E-R-E-R. Uh, it's a little. <laughs> I, I tried I to find that. other things. I, I originally wanted to be Chris Mage on, uh, because Chris Mage is the only card in Magic that has my name in it. That's right. I wanted to be Chris Mage on Twitter, but somebody already stole it. So I was like, mm. all right, Chris Carter, I guess. <laughs> you should be, but or you should be like some obnoxious knockoff of that, like Chris Mage 2007 or something. <laughs> XXX, Chris Mage XXX. Yeah, you should yeah. do it. <laughs> but then you got to like capitalize the middle X because it makes you all edgy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You should do that. Oh, man, Chris, thank you so much for joining me and having me on your kitchen table. I really appreciate your time. It's, it's, a, it's a very messy kitchen table, but I'm glad that, uh, that I could have you here on my magic clustered kitchen table with a sealed box of magic that I actually need to sell. <laughs> <laughs> I had a great time talking with Chris. Please go say hi to him on Twitter at Friss Kerderer. That's F-R-I-S-K-E-R-D-E-R-E-R. Go watch him stream on Twitch at Superfluous Rhetoric. That's S-U-P-E-R-F-L-U-O-U-S-R-H-E-T-O-R-I-C. Wow, that is a lot of spelling. Anywho's, be sure to check out Card Kingdom's Legacy streams on Monday nights at 6.30pm Pacific Standard Time at twitch.tv slash cardkingdom. And, as Chris said, Legacy is a great way to improve and build your knowledge of the game. So go watch it every Monday night on Card Kingdom stream. And also, there's another Legacy Preservation Series 1K coming up on July 30th at 12 noon Pacific Standard Time. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. We had seen, actually it came from a photograph that we had seen. It was in a clothing store, which doesn't exactly make sense, but it was a lamp made from old pieces of sheet music. And they had hung them up, built this elaborate frame and hung the sheet music from it. We thought it was just a really beautiful look. So we stole that idea and instead of sheet music, you know, got a grommet machine and we're putting holes in, it was collector's edition land cards. Um, for the one here in Ballard. And uh, the next story, I kind of wanted to up my game a little bit. And so I was like, I want to do full art land. And, and this was before, you know, and Zendikar just wasn't quite good enough for that. You know, I really wanted to have an unhinged or an unglued card. And, you know, we laid them out and the unhinged just looked beautiful. So it's like, I'm going to go for that. And I, a lot of people were very uncomfortable with it the first time they saw it. There were there some comments where people thought I was butchering the lands and doing a terrible thing with them. And you know, I was like, well, yeah, I can have them sit in a box or I can put them on display for everybody to enjoy. And I still think it's a beautiful light, but I, there might be a little bit of regret making people feel bad <laughs> about the, the little lands. I'm hanging out with Damon Morris. He and his brother founded Card Kingdom and Mox Boarding House in Seattle, Washington. As you may have heard, Damon was describing some of the thought process that went into making the famed Landoliers, which are chandeliers made using hundreds of unhinged full art lands. Yes, I cringed the first time I saw them too. But if you've ever stepped foot into Card Kingdom, Cafe Mox, or Mox Boarding House, you'll agree that it's probably one of the most epic game stores in the entire United States. Join us for the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. Thanks so much for listening to the first few episodes on Season 1 of Kitchen Table Magic. 
All of the show notes for each episode is at kitchentablemagic.org. Please follow us on Twitter at KTM Podcast. To find us on Facebook, just search for Kitchen Table Magic Podcast in the search bar. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. There are fancy perks and exclusive content that you don't want to miss. Thank you so much. Well, as you probably heard in our other shows, we don't really have any sponsors, but in true magic fashion, I did sell some magic card to fund this little podcast. Today's sponsor is Karn Liberated. That's right, I sold a Karn Liberated to my buddy John. Shout out to John, you're funding this podcast right now. Karn is a very powerful planeswalker. I mean, he already starts off at six loyalty. When you tick up four loyalty, target player exiles a card from their hand. My goodness, 10 loyalty? What are you going to do to get rid of this stupid thing? And then minus three exile target permanent? It's like, hey, that red source that you have, I'm going to get rid of that. Yes, I am a Jun player. Yes, I don't like Karn Liberated. I'm still salty about Tron. But the worst part about it is the ultimate ability. Minus 14. Restart the game. My gosh, we're restarting the game with all of your stuff that it exiled. Oh my goodness. And you know what? I'm just going to be honest here. I've had this happened to me about maybe three times and that makes me learn how to play Jun really well so I don't ever get to that point. Still, Karn Liberated, what are you gonna do? Yeah.